Okay, so we're continuing in Matthew chapter 20 this week. And last week we looked at Matthew 19, verse 30, through Matthew 20 and verse 16. And talked about what this parable is referring to. It's referring to Jews and Gentiles. Um, and this is the only place this parable is found. And um, at the crux of the issue is verse 30 and verse 16. That's the bookends of this parable. We looked at the Greek word eklektos. And what that means, uh, that doesn't always mean chosen in the sense of picked out, but it means choice, precious, excellent, distinguished. Some of the uh, verses in the Greek Old Testament that use this um, this word and how more often than none it's, it's used in that sense. Choice, excellent, distinguished, uh, fat, that we look at some of the cows, some kinds of meat that we looked at. Um, that's what it means, and so we're, as we bring that over into New Testament, that's what it should mean in the New Testament as well most times. So, but the context will determine, and uh, we saw what verse 16 means. And today, <coughs> we're going to start in verse 17 and go through verse 28. So let's go ahead and read that. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, and said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, and be baptized? with the baptism that I am baptized with. They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand on my left is not mine to get. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. By my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it should not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. This is the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, so we see they're going to Jerusalem, and if we were to look at the Mark passage, we're not going to go to it, the, the disciples were very surprised that Jesus is going to Jerusalem because they knew what awaited him there. Before he even said this, they knew how much he was hated there last time he was there. And, um, you know, Jesus is going to battle, and he's leading them there. And they were following him. He was a leader. And that's, that's one of the great um, characters of a good leader. He's willing to lead people into battle, to w- lead people into danger. Uh, if, as, of course, God has to call them to that, not just being at, uh, not just going just to go. But just, he's leading them. He's, he's ahead of them. He's first. And um, people are following him because he's willing to meet that danger head-on and to go for it. And we see, once again, in verse 18 and 19, we talked about this not too long ago, that those who scourge and crucify and mock are the Gentiles. Um, Judas, of course, will will deliver Jesus to the, the chief priests and the scribes. They will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock, they will scourge, and they will crucify him. Um, now, what I want to do just for a second here, I'm not going to spend too much time on this today, is look at Isaiah 53. Uh, Malachi, come here for a second, please. Isaiah 53, 
I want you to pass these out. I think I have about 11 of them there, so just pass them out, you know, per couch and just let people share them. Pass them out as quickly as you can, son. And what I'm passing out to you is the English translation of the Greek Old Testament regarding Isaiah 53. And uh, I want to turn there. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Isaiah 53 while you're waiting. And um, <clears throat> all of the times I can see Isaiah 53 quoted in the New Testament, they're always quoting from the Septuagint. And so I think that's a uh, one chapter we should definitely consider out of Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It's the it's the version of the Old Testament that is usually quoted from. Um, but in this in Isaiah 53, I can't find one example where it's quoted from the Hebrew. Okay, so I want you, I'm going to read through. I want you to I want you to look at your Bible, the New King James Version, Isaiah 53. I'm going to read through it. Uh, 53 and Septuagint, and I want you to notice the differences, okay? And then we can you can tell me what differences you see. Okay, Isaiah 53, you're reading you're reading along your Bible as I read through the Septuagint version. O Lord, who has believed their report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He brought a report as of a child before him. He is that he is as a root in a thirsty land. He has no form nor comeliness, when we, and when we and we saw him, and but he had no form nor beauty, but his form was ignoble and inferior to that of the children of men. He was a man of suffering, and acquainted with the bearing of sickness, for his face has turned from us. He was dishonored and not esteemed. He bears our sins and his pain for us, yet we accounted him to be in trouble, and in suffering and in affliction. But he was wounded on account of our sins, and was bruised because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his bruises we were healed. All we as sheep have gone astray, everyone has gone astray in his way, and the Lord gave him up for our sins. And he, because of his affliction, opens not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth, because of the iniquities of my people, he was led to death. And I'll give the wicked for his burial, and the rich for his death, for he practiced no iniquity, nor craft was in his mouth, with his mouth. The Lord also is pleased to purge him from his stroke. If you can give an offering for sin, your soul shall see a long-lived seed. The Lord is also pleased to take away from the travail of his soul, to show him light, and to form him with understanding. To justify the just one who serves many well, and he shall bear their sins. Therefore he shall inherit many, he shall divide the spoils of the mighty, because his soul was delivered to death, and he was numbered among the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and was delivered because of their iniquities. Okay, now, someone gave me one thing they saw that was pretty significant. And verse 4, you can see that wasn't even mentioned. But to, let me read verse 4 for you again. He bears our sins, and is pain for us, yet we accounted him to be in trouble and in suffering and affliction. That's verse 4 in Septuagint. Now, one thing I want to point out to you here is the word translated as God here is Elohim, and it's plural. Okay? And Elohim is not always translated as God in the Bible. It also is used of judges, used of those in authority, used of mighty people, people in governmental positions. And so if we were to take that, just let's just go back to the Hebrew again here, which is verse 4. If we take that word Elohim there, smitten by Elohim and afflicted, we could very easily translate it smitten by who? We just read it in Matthew. By the people who were in authorities. 
people who are over him, the mighty men, the people in governmental positions. And so um, it doesn't necessarily have to be God there. So you can see how even in verse 4 of the Hebrew version, it says smitten by Elohim, the person's uh, preference and the person's doctrine is coming into play in their translation here of what is going on. And so if we, even if we take the Hebrew version here, it would make sense because it doesn't have to be smitten by God, but smitten by Elohim, smitten by the mighty ones, smitten by the government authorities, but smitten by those who are in power. Okay, which makes sense, which is what we just read in Matthew 20. That he was mocked, he was scourged, he was crucified by the Gentiles. They are the ones, the ones who are in authority over the Jewish people, over Jesus, they are the ones who did this. In fact, Jesus said to Pilate, you wouldn't have the authority unless my father had given it to you. Okay, so he had authority. And God allowed him to have it. And he only, was only allowed to do what God allowed him to do. Okay, so we see verse 4, smitten by God. That's kind of been taken care of here. So we can... Anyone else see anything else that was pretty significant? What about verse 10? Verse 10 in, in the or New King James, the translation of the Hebrew says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, verse 10, Septuagint says, The Lord is also pleased to purge him from his stroke. Okay, the word purge there means to cleanse. Okay. Uh, stroke is a, a punishment, a flogging, a scourging. Uh, so the Lord purified him or cleansed him from this stroke, from this beating he went through. He cleansed him of it. He rose him from the grave. He defeated death. And he put an end to it eventually, didn't he? He put an end to this stroke that he was given. Yes, brother. I can't remember the verse that he read. I think the last week uh, talked about Jesus being perfected by suffering. Yeah, it's in Hebrews. He learned obedience through suffering. Yes. And so he was... Um, but I, I think what it's... I mean, I, I guess it could possibly mean that, but I think what it's saying there in verse 10 of the Septuagint, if you look at verse 10, it says, The Lord is also pleased to purge him from his stroke. He's being bru bruised and beaten and crucified. He's cleansing him from that. It's only lasting for so long. And it's going to end. And then he, he's risen from the dead. And even though those people rejected him, he's saying, I receive him um, as an offering for sin. So those are two uh, main things I want you to look at. What else do you see there? Anything else significant that you want to bring up? Well, John? Um, in verse 5, it says... Um, verse 6? Yeah, that's a big part, too. So what, what doctrine can people get out of that if they read into it? Imputation thing, where, where our, our sins are literally laid upon Jesus, and, and his righteousness is transferred to us. But you see in, in verse 7 it says, um, I'm sorry, that was that was 6. The Lord gave him up for our sins. Gave him up, which is true. Um, and that's, that's the Greek word paradidomi, and it means to deliver, to give up. And we know that Jesus did deliver him to him in a sense because he took his hand of protection off of them. He gave him up. Where all along he wasn't giving him up. He's saying, no, you can't touch him. No, you can't touch him. I'm going to save him here. I'm going to save him here. Finally, he gave him up for our sins, which is exactly what happened. Just the right time. When without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Yeah, so, and you can see in verse 7, I think the lamb and sheep are changed around uh, when compared to the Septuagint there. 
it says sheep first and then lamb, and, and our version says uh, lamb first and then sheep. Um, so that you can see, and even in verse 12, it says in our version, the King James says, he bore the sin of many. In this one, it says, he bore the sin of many, but was delivered because of their iniquities. Okay, so it's, it's telling you what that means. And you have to keep in mind, when this is written, Isaiah 53, when this is written, there was never any concept of this transferring of righteousness of sin. Never a concept of that. Ezekiel 18, written around the same period of time, completely refutes such an idea. That you can be punished, you can have this righteousness of sin transfer between people. They would have, they would have thought, bore our sins, oh, that's what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They bore our sins, but they wouldn't think that those lambs or those goats, scapegoats, would have become actually sinful. I mean, if they did, what righteousness did that goat have to transfer to you? The goat doesn't have any righteousness. So they wouldn't be thinking in that sense. People, are, people come to Isaiah and interpret it in a, in a Luther sense or a Calvin sense, which is not found. It was not, no, nowhere to be seen in this, when this was written. So anytime you come to a biblical text, you have to think about the original writer writing to the original readers and what it, what it meant to them. And then we make an application. Then we form doctrine from there. But this, that idea wasn't even conceived. wasn't even thought of. Okay, so hopefully you can see from... I just wanted you to see that. And um, every instance I can find in the New Testament that I was able to find where Isaiah 53 is partially, is partially quoted to some degree, it's coming from this version right here. And so... Um, and you would think, if, if Isaiah 53.4, smitten by God, Isaiah 53.10, please the Lord of Bruce, was actually talking about God's wrath being poured out upon Jesus, you think that would have been articulated very clearly in the New Testament, especially if it's the gospel, as I've heard some, some preachers say. That Jesus, God's wrath being poured out upon Jesus is, is the gospel. If that's the gospel, it should have been articulated very clearly in the New Testament, with these verses. But that was never done. It was never done. In fact, I, I can't find, smitten by God, this quote from the verse 4 anywhere in the New Testament, and I can't find the other part anywhere in the New Testament either. So, maybe it's, it's not as important as the people who try to make it seem to be. I mean, obviously, he was uh, a sacrifice for sins. It was a sin offering. Uh, but nowhere is it articulated in that way in the New Testament that people try to say that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 20. You can study that some more in your own time if you want to look over that some more. Right. And so we see uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons and her sons come to Jesus asking him this thing. And he says in verse uh, 23, So it's not mine to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. You see a distinction there in answering this question. I'll get to what he says before that here in a second. But you see a distinction made there between him and the Father. Now, if him and the Father are one in personhood, how could he even possibly say this? He can't say it. It is his to give if he's the Father. So how can he say it's not his to give if he's the Father? But he's not the Father. That's why he can say it's not mine to give, but it's for whom it's been prepared by my Father. It's obviously personhood. So what, even though the Bible doesn't say God the Father person, God the Son person, God the Holy Spirit person, laid out in that way, you can't get past this. 
Jesus' words wouldn't make any sense here unless there was differences in personhood when it comes to the Godhead, when it comes to the Trinity. And you see how the disciples re- reply this. They're pretty upset about it. And um, this is not the last time this is going to be dealt with. In fact, you see this in Luke 22, and verses 24 through 30. You see it being dealt with again uh, at the Last Supper. And this is right after Jesus um, instituted the communion, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, with the blood and the, and the bread. And he says in verse 24, Now there is also a dispute among them as to which of them would be, should be considered the greatest. So this wasn't dealt with. I mean, Jesus told them that whoever wants to be first among you, let him be your slave. He's trying to get them the humble stuff. He's talking about children, how they are the model for how we should act, the, the, the humility they have, the humbleness they have. He said in verse 30 of Matthew 19, first will be last, last will be first. He's trying to get them to change their mindset here. They're still thinking in a more of a earthly sphere here of who, who can be sitting on your right and your left, who can be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven besides you, of course, Lord. And they're still arguing about it at the Last Supper. And he says that the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as a younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom. This is my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you still have a problem. They're still not getting this issue. But obviously they'll get it eventually. They'll get it eventually. Okay, I want to focus most of the rest of the time here on this, what is in this cup? What is in this immersion, this baptism that Jesus is talking about? And what does this mean when he says, I gave my life a ransom for many? Okay, let's talk about this cup here. Because he says to James and John, are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? And they say, yes, we are. And he says, or they say, we are able and he says, you will indeed drink my cup. This, this passage right here is oftentimes kind of tossed to the side when talking about what is in this cup. If you go to Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane here, and many people, when talking about their atonement view, will say, what was in that cup? It was a cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank. It was a cup of God's wrath. And so let's, let's go to Matthew 26 just for a minute here. And look at, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, 
If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. They came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So people will read this verse about this cup here. They'll see how distressed Jesus is. He's uh, began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Um, very distressed over this. And so people will conclude from this by seeing Jesus' reaction to what he's going through. You know, one version said he even sweats drops of blood. That's how distressed he is. They assume because it's that that there's no way you're talking about men bringing Jesus under suffering here. It's got to be talking about something much greater, much different than that. Because it's got to be God's wrath being poured out upon Jesus, because that's the only way we can make sense of Jesus being so exceedingly sorrowful and so distressed. But let's go back to Matthew 20 again, and let's see what is in this cup, and see if, if it can be God's wrath according to Matthew 20. Let's just kind of break it down here and see if that, that version of this cup will fit in Matthew uh, 20. Verse 22, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath that I am about to drink and be baptized with the cup of God's wrath that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Now, keep in mind now, the cup of God's wrath, the people who believe that are talking about, they're saying is God's wrath poured out upon Jesus for the people who will be saved. It was done so it could be an exact and literal punishment for our sins because we deserve the wrath of God, although we'll endure it for all eternity. They'll say, well, the wrath Jesus endured on the cross for six hours was equal to the amount of wrath we would have endured for all eternity. Okay, that's what people will say. So they say, we, are you able to be baptized and drink that cup that I am about to be baptized with, and the cup I'm about to drink? Yes, we are able to drink the cup of God's wrath for the elect. So they say to them, you will indeed drink my cup of God's wrath for the elect and indeed be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Now, does that make any sense? We have to say James and John aren't saved because they're drinking the cup of God's wrath, uh, which means they're not part of the elect because the elect don't drink the cup of God's wrath. They aren't baptized with that kind of baptism. We have to be able to say that, but we know that's not true because John later on wrote Revelation, wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the three epistles of John. I have to say he wasn't saved during that whole period of time. And James was the first martyr for the faith. And so, are, are we willing to, to say that? Um, so, what is in this cup? What is in this, uh, this baptism that he's referring to here? Well, he said, if you saw in Matthew 26, he said, the hour has come. He says, rise and let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And, um, let's see here. It says in verse 45, Behold, the hour is at hand, or has drawn near, uh, where I am being betrayed into the Son, the hands of the sinners. Let's look at some other scriptures that talk about this baptism in this cup, too, so we can get a more clearer picture of this. Let's first go to Mark chapter 14, and verse 32. This is again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, and verse 32. So then uh, I want you to listen for the hour and listen for the cup to see if they are synonymous here. 
Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So we see in Matthew that the cup might pass from him. We see in Matthew 20 that he's talking about a cup and a baptism, those things being synonymous. And now he says that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. So you see, the hour might pass from me. praying the hour might pass, and this cup take away from me. That's a synonymous thing there. And we see in Matthew 20 that the baptism is synonymous with the cup as well. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter temptation. The spirit of deed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. So you see, the hour is come. The cup that he is referring to is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And what they're going to do to him. And one thing I just want to point out here, just as a side note here, we have the scripture that says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I've seen it twice now. What does that mean? Does that mean, well, the flesh can't obey God? Is that what it means? No, you look at it, he's referring to them falling asleep. They're tired. Their eyes are heavy. They're having a hard time staying awake. That's the flesh is talking about there. I'm not talking about sinfulness here. We're talking about them just, they can't stay awake. They're weak in that sense. Not as if they can't obey God. But they're just tired. They're just tired. That's all there is to it. Because some people use that to, to back up this perpetual sinfulness. Okay, Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. This is much earlier on in Jesus' ministry. He says in verse 50, but I have a, baptize, a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Um, that word accomplished there, I think it also be translated as finished. And what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Now, of course, uh, some people would say, well, that means he, he finished drinking the God's cup, cup of God's wrath. But as we can see, we have, there's nowhere in the scripture that talks about this cup and this baptism besides the, one, the verses I'm showing you. Okay? Um, unless someone else can show me another one that I'm not aware of. And so we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't come to Scripture with our own ideas and impose them upon the verses or upon the terms. Scripture interprets Scripture. So Jesus is distressed at this baptism that he's about to be baptized with. The same baptism that he said that, that John and James said they could, they are able to be baptized with. The same one Jesus said they will be baptized with. That's the one he's distressed about. In Luke twelve fifty, we see the same one talked about in Matthew twenty, uh, verses twenty two and twenty three. So he's distressed about that. Uh, then we can go to uh, John chapter twelve, in verse Jesus speaking said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So at this hour here, he's distressed about the baptism, distressed about the cup, distressed about the hour that's going to come. Um, these are all things he's distressed about. And we see the hour, according to Luke, is synonymous with these people coming and picking him up. Or Mark, I'm sorry. It's not with people coming and picking him up and him being betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's what the hour is. That's what he's distressed about. And so he's betrayed into the hands of sinners who are going to beat him and bruise him and crucify him. And then finally, uh, John chapter 18. And starting in verse 10, this is after the prayer in Gethsemane. He's being arrested now. Starting in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into, your, into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now, the cup is God's wrath. How is Peter fighting to stop Jesus from being arrested, going to stop him from drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's not. It's it's the it's the cup of human. It's a cup of sin, sinner's wrath. It's a cup of suffering. And and, and if we go back through his verses that I've been showing you, hopefully you can see what it's referring to: the hour that's coming, the baptism he's distressed about, the cup he's distressed about, he's going to drink, that he wants to pass from him, is the cup of wrath from sinners. And who's behind them? Satan's behind them. And so, if we go back to Matthew 20, and you read it in light of that now, it's a cup and a baptism of man's suffering. Now it begins to make sense. Because now, they, now James and John can say we are able to endure it. They can't say that about enduring God's wrath. Now they can say, now Jesus can say to them, you will indeed, indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And now it makes sense. So we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so comes, someone comes to you and says, well, uh, Jesus drank the, drank the cup of God's wrath. Well, where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say he drank the cup of God's wrath? Isaiah 53, they'd say Matthew 26. And they would use this, this way of thinking on it. But if you go through all these verses that talk about the same situation, the same thing, the same cup, the same baptism, the same distress, the same hour, it's all referring to the same thing. And Matthew 20 refutes their ideas. And so, but, but it, 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 this is one of the reasons they come to this position of limited atonement. Because God took, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath for all of mankind. Then guess what? All of mankind is what? Saved. Because you're not going to drink the cup of God's wrath for your sins as well as you. It's just you. It wouldn't be finished. It'd be finished for the elect from their point of view. That's why they have to come to this limited atonement view, which is what I want to talk about next. Verse 28. This is the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now see... Jesus Christ didn't give his life for ransom for all, they would say. He only gave it for many. I don't know, what are we going to do now? Well, let's look at some other scriptures they used to promote this idea as well. Isaiah 53, which we just looked at, verse 11 and 12. They like to focus on this word many here. 
And by seeing this word many, they say, well, look, Jesus didn't die for everybody. So verse 11 and 12, <clears throat> He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. My, by his knowledge, my, ser- my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall build, bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So you see many there as well. We just saw it in Matthew 20, 28. We see it in Matthew 26. Well, that's what I'm, I'm bringing these verses out. That's why I'm bringing these verses out, to show you these verses they'll use. And they're, they're going to say, well, look, he only died for many here. And so I'm going to show you how to properly interpret these passages. They talk about many here in a second, according to my view anyway. Verse 28, For this the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many, for remission of sins. Matthew 26, 20. Many. It's only shed, only shed for many, right? John chapter 10. <coughs> In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays gives his life for the sheep. Not for the goats. For the sheep. He only dies for the sheep, right? I want you to know, are you seeing the word only in any of these verses? Are you seeing the word only in any of these verses I'm quoting to you? Yeah, well, that's what they're imposing upon it, though. They say he dies for many. He lays light down for his sheep. He bore the sins of many. And they're putting the word only in there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 25. Husband, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her. See, he gave himself for the church. Not for the sinners, for the church. Uh, Hebrews 9. And this is how they're building their doctrine. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So you see all these verses here, and but, but using the logic they're using here, that it's only talking about him bearing the sins of many. I want to look at a couple other verses, and let's see if we can limit it just the people is talking about in these verses too. Okay? And let's use this logic here that when it says these verses say that he died for many, that he laid his life down for the sheep, that he died for the church, to cleanse her, let's use that logic with these things now. And let's see if, if we can uh, even limit the atonement even more. Isaiah fifty three verse five and six is written to Jewish people now. Okay, keep that in mind. Isaiah fifty three verses five and six. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Written to Jewish now, people now. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now let's use Calvinistic logic here. Jesus only died for the Jews. Only died for the Jews. Because it was... He, t- he was wounded for our transgressions. Not for your transgressions, Gentiles. Our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's why chastisement for our, our peace was upon him. And of course, verse 6 wouldn't apply to everybody now, because now it says all the sheep have gone astray, so I guess there's some people in the world who haven't gone astray. Because this is just applying to the Jewish people now. And so now, if we use their their idea, their way of interpreting things, Isaiah 53, 5-6, it limits it to about now, not just to the elect, Just the Jews now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. Matthew 1, 21. 
And it says, this is the uh, angel talking to, uh, to Joseph. It says, and she, talking about Mary, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So now he's still only the Savior of the Jews now. And so the many that all these verses are talking about, that Calvinists use to promote this doctrine of limit to them, they really should limit it just to Jews. That's the only one he died for, according to these verses. If we're going to use their logic here, their way of thinking. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. <clears throat> so we know he died only for the Jews, but are there certain Jews he died for only? Let's see what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. <clears throat> He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So now Jesus only died for Paul. So he, he was a Jew, so he qualifies. But he died for him. And so, they're putting this word only into all these passages. Let's put them into the passage we're reading right now. 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 24. And Paul is writing, and Peter is writing to the, the pilgrims of the dispersion, the Jewish people who disperse all around the place. And he says, in verse 24, Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So now, once again, he's only dying for the Jewish people. And so if we use the Calvinistic principle of interpretation by implicating this word only into all these passages, talking about many and talking about who he died for, now all we have is Jesus dying for the Jews, and according to Galatians 2.20, he only died for Paul. But see, when we do that, we have an inherent contradiction, don't we? And that's the problem I have with the interpretation uh, that the uh, Calvinists use. Just because Jesus died it's because the scriptures say that Jesus died for a certain group of people. does not mean that he died only for that group of people. Do you understand that? He died for many, but he also died for all. So let's look at some scriptures now that refute this idea. John chapter 1. We'll jump around this, so have your swords ready. John chapter 1 and verse 29. John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. No? The sins of Paul? No, the sins of the elect? The sins of the world. The world. Uh, let's go to John 3.16. It's something similar. We all know this verse. Uh, For he, God's love the world. And he gave his only begotten Son, to her believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's go to the next verse, though. Really, more important. For God not sent the Son in the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. Yeah, it might. But it's still for the world here. Now, of course, the cows will say, well, the word cosmos doesn't mean the whole world. You know, if we went to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, it said that Caesar's going to tax the whole world. Now, was he going to tax North America and South America? Of course not. But see, the, world, the word world, cosmos, can be limited in some cases. But that doesn't mean it's limited in every case. And there has to be something within the text, within this passage, that has to limit it. Now let me ask you this question. If God wanted to communicate that he wanted all people to be saved, and he sent Christ to die for all, how would he communicate it? How more effectively could he communicate it 
than what John 1 says and what John 3, 16 and 17 says. There's no other way to effectively communicate that. Now, if he wanted to say that Christ only died for the elect, only for a certain group of people, only, you think he would have made it more clear than this. God is a master communicator. He is the author of communication. He knows how to communicate to his people. John chapter 6, in verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Of the world. Romans chapter 5. The one I just kind of quoted a second ago. That at just the right time, where without strength, Christ died for the elect. Well, he died for the ungodly. If I say in open air, are you ungodly? Well, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Yeah, everyone's been ungodly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18 and 19. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and here's the ministry of reconciliation. Pay attention. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what is the word of reconciliation? That God wants the whole world to be saved. What is the ministry of reconciliation? That God wants the whole world to be saved. Through the saints preaching the gospel. First uh, Timothy chapter two. There's really very few scriptures that try to promote this idea of limited atonement. That's why you'll find a lot of Calvinists struggle with the L. They really struggle with the L. You'll find lots of four-point Calvinists they call themselves. But hey, if you don't have the L, the rest of it falls apart. It's kind of like you're hanging from a cliff on a five chains. That are connected together. If one of them breaks, you're falling down. The whole system collapses. First Timothy two, verses three through six. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. We test that God in due time. Now wait a minute now. All Many? We just read many a second ago, ransom for many. Now he's saying a ransom for all. And so we, we'll be able to make sense of this here in a second. I'm going to get to some scriptures that are actually going to clarify. Two scriptures I'm going to give you. They're going to clarify and help us interpret this properly. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. They'll be the last two scriptures I'll give you. They'll be the ones that clarify this for us. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For everyone. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Talking about Jesus, but such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless or innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. We does not need daily, as those priests, to offer up sacrifices for, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, 
having obtained eternal redemption. Second Peter chapter 2. <coughs> in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among you, even as there be falsehoods among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. So Jesus is trying to buy false teachers. He died to purchase them. He died to redeem them. But they reject it. They're not going to be saved. They're not going to be saved. 1 John 4, in verse 14. And we have seen and testified, the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Savior of the world. And so you're going to have to do some pretty heavy twisting to twist these these verses to mean only many, only this group of people. Only, and, say, and those verses we read before that have many in it or just are the sheep in it, it doesn't say he only died for those people or he only died for Paul, he only died for the Jews. It just said he died for them. I could say he died for John. Does that mean he only died for John? Does that mean he doesn't die for everyone else here? That's not what I mean when I say that. That's not what the... The, script, the people who wrote the scripture believed either. So let's look at two scriptures, I believe, give, bring clarity to this issue and show us uh, exactly what God is trying to communicate here about the atonement and how it works. 1 John 2.2 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now he's writing to Christians here. And not our sins only, but also for the whole world. So there is a special kind of way he died for us because we are the ones that take part in the benefits of the atonement. So when you see the word many, or you see him dying for his sheep, or you see him dying for this group of people, it can mean he, it can simply mean that he's dying for them as well as others. He just focusing on that group at that point in time, as Paul was only focused on himself in Galatians two twenty. Or it could actually mean when he says died for many in Matthew twenty, that he. That's talking about the benefits of the atonement being applied to those people. Those are the ones who will actually be saved by what Christ did on the cross. But that's yet to be determined. Those people determine that for themselves. And then 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. And I think this really helps to clarify it as well. We'll start in verse 9. <clears throat> this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. For this end we both labor and suffer approach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So is he literally, does he literally save all men? What verse is that That's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10. Okay. Is he literally the savior of all men? Are all men going to be saved? Are all men going to be in the kingdom? No. But he did die for all men. It's available to all men. So he is in that sense the Savior of all men, but especially to those who believe. Those are the ones who take parts, take part in the benefits the atonement uh, brings. Forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of sins, reconciliation to the Father. If you're in Christ, you have inheritance of the kingdom with him, co-inheritors with him. And so what we need to do, we need to interpret the many in light of the all. Not interpret the law in light of the many. Because when it says many, or it says the sheep, or it says this group of people, it never says only. It never says only. And so they have their interpretation scheme backwards. 
Hey, look, many. Only for them. Only for them. Only for them. Well, he didn't die for the whole world. I got twist world there. I got twist with. I mean, how can you twist First Peter, First Timothy four ten? How can you twist First John two two? But that's what you must do. And it changed the word cosmos to where it never means whole world. If Jesus wanted to say a whole world, how would he say it? How could he make it any clearer than he has? <laughs> Even then they say, well, it's only the, the universal elect or something. I mean, there's, there's, they come to the scriptures and they twist them. And really, it's not what they're preaching, if they're preaching this, is not the ministry of reconciliation. It's not the word of reconciliation, which Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. He died for all men. He wants all to be saved. And so, hopefully you can see, going back to Matthew 20, just kind of, you know, sum this up here, is that the baptism and the cup is a cup and baptism of man's suffering, which, of course, is demonically inspired. Because, you know, as it says in Genesis chapter 3, I think verse 15, he shall bruise his heel. He's watching. He wants to kill Jesus. He wants to harm Jesus. And uh, we see here that uh, the hour, and from other verses, it's synonymous with the cup and the baptism. And that he was greatly distressed about that. Now, it, going back to that real quick, is there a problem with Christ being greatly distressed and sorrowful that his own creation is going to kill him and bruise him and beat him and mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and rip his beard out and put a, a, a crown of thorns on his head and pierce? I mean, is, it, is there a problem with him being greatly distressed and sorrowful over that? Is it ungodly for Christ to be that way? Does it have to be something more extreme than that, like God pouring his wrath out on his son? Does it have to be that way? I don't think so. I don't think so. They, they often mock this interpretation because they'll say, well, martyrs in the past have gone to their own deaths joyfully. And here we have Jesus being sorrowful and greatly distressed. Well, I think they mock Jesus when they do that. I think that's exactly what's going on. And to oppose something upon the text that's not there, that's not found in the Bible, is to be dishonest. And so they can mock it all they want, but let's interpret Scripture with Scripture and see what it actually says and believe what it says. And there really is no comparison because Jesus is the creator of all men. Jesus has done so much for all men. If they despise him and reject him and scourge him and crucify him. And we are not the creators of all men. And so if we were to look at Psalm 22 talking about the cross, his heart had melted within him. He literally died of a broken heart. I mean, they pierced him aside. You can see when the fluid came out. That's what happened to him. He didn't die from his physical illness from being on the cross and suffocating. He died of a broken heart. You can see that. That's why he was greatly distressed. That's why he was sorrowful. Because of what his own creation was about to do to him. And how they're rejecting him. Not because of the pain he was going to go through. Because of what his creation was about to do to him. And he loved them so much and taught them the truth. And showed them. I mean, his own people who had the oracles of God, who had all these miracles that he'd done for them, they're still rejecting him. We can't. Right. 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 Yeah. His own people reject him. I mean, these are his own people. They were a special people. They were his elect people. They were his chosen people who just rejected him. It's a very sorrowful thing. 
so there's really no comparison in my mind. I don't think we have to raise it up to be something worse that he's going through to make it his sorrow and his distress to, to make it to justify it in some way. We don't have to do that. And we see that the, the ransom he gave for many was not only for many, but it was for all. But it's only especially for those who believe. Those are the ones who will be saved. Those ones who take part in the benefits of the atonement. Okay? So as we go through these passages talk about the many, the many, the many, um, we have to understand that God is not limiting the, the application of the atonement to only those many. It's available to all. But the benefits will only go to many because only many will believe. Only many. All will not believe. All right, well, let's uh, put up for objections, questions, or things you want to add to it. I mean, that, that's definitely a possibility. I mean, that could have happened. No, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you did it or not. But uh, but obviously, if they wouldn't have applied it, that's what would have happened. You know, God, God doesn't change because they're. Let's see, he says here. Sure. Um, ransom means, it's a Greek word, lutron, and it means the price of release, uh, to redeem, to set free, to rescue. Okay. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. I have some scriptures here. I wanted to talk about that just for a second here. Uh, let's look at some other verses that, that use that word, um, the word behind ransom here in Matthew 20, 28. Let's go to Titus uh 2.14 And what does uh, Jesus do, Malachi, from, for, from every lost deed? He does what? To what from every lost deed? Re... You know Matthew? What is it? But what did, what did he do? To redeem us from every law of deed. Okay? And purify it for himself as well. So the word redeem here is the same thing here. So he's redeeming us from every law of He's purifying us. He's delivering us. Releasing us. Setting us free. Rescuing us from every law of deed. Which is really synonymous with forgiveness. He's putting it aside. Delivering it from us. Delivering us from it. Etc. And then I got Hebrews 9.12. which we already uh, read, the last word in verse 12. Not blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay? So redeemed by his blood. By his blood. Um, one of the verses that I'll have written down, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6, 
Uh, I don't I don't know if this is using the same word here, but the same concept. First uh, Corinthians six and verse twenty: For you're bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So the price you're bought at a price, and what is that price? Well, um, let's see. Revelation one five says, "To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood." bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19 Knowing that you are not redeemed there it is the word right there with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ through a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so this issue of this ransom here, <clears throat> in a later on church days, not early, early church, maybe 300s and on, they had an issue with this word ransom where they began to believe, some of them began to believe that uh, we, that Jesus bought us back from Satan, like Satan was paid off to get us back. But you never ransom is not used in that way in, this, in, the, in the scriptures. It's used in a way where he's delivering us, he's redeeming us, he's setting us free, He's rescuing us. And it cost him to do this. This is the cost of redemption. The cost of the ransom is his own life, his shed blood. And so there's no one's being paid here. Okay, there's no payment being made. God isn't being paid because we weren't we weren't gods. We were sinners. We were children of the devil before Christ before we became Christians. And Satan definitely isn't being paid off. Because God doesn't know is Satan anything. He doesn't always say anything, as if you know, as if there's like they're equal equal forces, like it's God against Satan and Satan's equal power with God or something like that. He has to make a bargain with Satan. That's not the way it works. Now you, you see this this idea portrayed in um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, where uh, Aslan is kind of the payment, I guess you could say. And, I mean, there's some truth in what happened there. I mean, I, I definitely there's some demonic activity involved in what happened to Christ. His beating, his bruising, his scourging, his crucifying. There's, there's no, no doubt in my mind that demonic forces were behind those men. And they were glee with happiness as they beat and bruised the Son of God and tried to destroy him. Um, but uh, it wasn't like as if Jesus and Satan had a conversation and said, okay, if you let Edmund go free, if you let the sinners go free, you can have me. That's nowhere. That's nowhere articulated in the scripture. Nowhere. And so, if people take this word "ransom" too far. You can take any of these words too far. From this, I mean, so many words. And I, I've been compiling it for for a while now. And, and you know, my notes I'm going through for the atonement about these words: ransom and redeem and and purge and cleanse and purify and uh, what's that? Propitiation. Yeah, imputation. All these things that are involved in, in this atonement. Uh, but if you take these words too far, you're going to come off the view of someone that's not necessary. Well, there's no payment made to God because we weren't gods. A ransom is something you pay to release someone from captivity. Okay, right. If someone kidnaps my son, they want a ransom of a million dollars. I have to pay the criminal who has possession of my son, take them to release my son. And there's no ransom being paid to God because we weren't in God's possession. We were sinners. Children of the devil. Yeah, so if a ransom was paid to anyone, it'd be to Satan, but 
there's no way any kind of you know payment was made to Satan. If, that, I mean, if, if, if that's what ransom, ransom means, means right. that's what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that. Uh, it means to, to deliver, uh, to set free, to rescue, and He redeems us from every lawless deed. That's what Titus two fourteen says. Would you say it's a, a, a ransom to reconciliation? God, in order for God the Father to be reconciled to the world, the Son had to be offered this way to meet the requirements of the law, to allow God to still maintain His holiness and His justice, and still be reconciled to sinners who had sinned against Him. I think you're adding, I mean, I understand you're trying to understand this, but I think in trying to understand Thomas, people add things to it that's not there. I don't think the scripture ever say that in order for God to maintain His holiness, He had to do it this way. Uh, that's something people read, like the moral government view of the government. That's something they would say. And I don't necessarily have any kind of problem with that philosophically, but the scriptures never say that, that I'm aware of. They never articulate that at all. Um, now, Christ was a fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And if we were to go to Leviticus 17.11, we'll see why the atonement was given. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood... And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so, why is it that blood makes atonement for the soul? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And But here's the question that I don't have the answer to. Why is a blood atonement sufficient, a sufficient substitute in God's eyes, to substitute us going to hell forever? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anyone does. I don't think it articulates that in the scriptures. Why did God pick it to be that? Why did God choose it to be that way? And so people try to figure these things out in their minds, and they come up with all these different theories that are just extra biblical. And then they make it, if you don't believe my theory of atonement, you're a heretic. Which is nonsense. Especially since the penal substitution theory of atonement didn't come around to the 16th century. And in its infant stages in the 11th century. And so if that's true, then we don't have the faith once for all deliver saints that everyone before that was a heretic. And so we can't, I can't get into, I mean, I don't want to hold fast the theories that they told me. I want to hold fast what the scriptures say on this and just limit ourselves to that. If it doesn't say it, let's not say it. If it does say it, let's say it. Whatever the implications may be, let God, you know, lead people. But the scriptures never say that God... Uh, did this to uphold his law or to public justice, public justice you know I don't I mean obviously it was done in public uh, it was a form of justice it does in some way satisfy God's character because the law in the Old Testament is a reflection of God's character yeah he was nailed to the cross you know public display uh, he became a curse for us it says and so there's lots of things to be seen in Scripture, but I've, I've studied a lot of these different theories, ransom theory, appeal substitution theory, satisfaction theory, moral government theory, and none of them are sufficiently, I think, communicating what the Bible says about this. It's simply that I mean, the life, the blood represents the life, mm -hmm. is perfect life. Right. Offered that you might have life. You know, I agree with that. Life. I mean, it's, it's maybe too simple, maybe a little simple. No, that's, then, that's the way it's supposed to be, I think. The law being nailed to the cross... Mm -hmm. Right. So there's his perfect life. We, we don't have life. Right. We're dead. Right. Passes in sin. Right. His life that we might have life. He gave his life that we might have life. I agree. So we're back to faith and the 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's really very simple. I think Hebrews 9.22 and Leviticus 17.11 really sum it up. If you want two verses, one from the old, one from the new, that sum it up. Those are two verses I think would sum it up. Atonement. It's verily, that's really that simple. Uh, you know, when the Bible says he washes in his blood, it doesn't really mean that we have this fountain of blood that we come under and we get washed, but it's simply saying his blood was shed for us. He was a sacrifice for sins. And God looked. At, God considers his atonement to be a sufficient, not an exact, but a sufficient substitute for us going to hell forever. And that's that's all I can make of it. You know, we try to figure these things out and go too deep. And the same thing with uh, the knowledge of God. You know, people try to figure that out and make all these kinds of systems like Calvinism, open theism, which I don't think need to be made. What does the scripture say? Do his will. Right. So, um, that, those might be used Deliver. for that ransom. Right. Where Satan's paid off, right? Well, we're held by Satan yeah. and we right. came to destroy the works of the devil. Um, well, we're, we are being ransomed from Satan. Delivered. Right, delivered. Rescued. Different. Set free yeah, from his influence. Yeah, from his power. So, so that it is ran- we are ransomed from the devil in that sense, in that sense yeah. but not where he's being paid. Yeah. yeah, and there was no, definitely no meeting that I'm aware of that. Yeah, because in, in Acts 26, right, mm-hmm. you're delivered from darkness to the light, light. And power of Satan to God. Right. So that's yeah, same thing. Yeah. That delivering thing is the same thing. Not, I don't think it's the same Greek word, but same concept. Mm-hmm. Same concept. The ring ransomed, delivered. What we see. And that's in verse 3, you're saying? So I was thinking, you know, when they say, well, many, there have been many martyrs who have died painful deaths. Oh, okay. But but the Lord's death was different in that his soul was made an offering for sin. Not just, you know, not just the physical, physical suffering that he went through, but he had soul. It was deeper. Soul agony. Right. Plus, there's lots of injustice in his death too. I mean, he was—he died as a sinner when he'd never sinned. Okay, verse ten.
Yeah, soul uh, in the Greek usually just means life too. But uh, it, it it does mean the whole of the person, I think, yeah. not just their body. Right. right. Well, that you know that that would that would mean his life. Yeah. Like you said, because yeah. you know, it's not just it's just his body. That's his life. Every every part of it. Not just one all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. Yeah. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaws. So you have brought me to the dust of death. Another thing I, I would point out is that it seems like as I read stories of martyrs that in the midst of their suffering, there's a special grace there to to handle it and to deal with it. And I don't I don't think I see that with Jesus. Uh, you know, he's quoting from Psalm 22. Sometimes you one is like, you know, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the groans of my like, my crying? And so maybe it's just that he's not given the same kind of grace that that all these other people who I've read about were given. Well, because we're not dying for it. Uh, right. He was the My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? In verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, the approach of men despised by the people. All those who see me, really, I mean, you know, hey, the whole world, I mean, literally forsook him, even his own disciples. Everyone. I don't know, I'm not so sure that anyone's ever experienced that. And not only that, we have saints who are, who would stand with us too. They had nobody. Even his closest disciples. That'd be some great distress right there. Suffer with him, yeah. So it's not just James and John suffering with him, it's everyone suffering with him. But he did. Don't be a groaning in your soul about the condition of the world and right. 
a desire to go out Oh, the desire to live godly, Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yeah. Like praying hide. Praying hide. He went through. He, uh, he was in India and he went to England. And they said that his heart had displaced itself. He was in India. He was a minister there, a missionary there. He went back to England because he was in bad health in England. And the doctor said that his, his heart had displaced itself. He said that can only happen through extreme anguish and sorrow. And so... Yeah, he wasn't martyred. Nope. Never murdered. Yeah, very much so. He, uh, he prayed for people to get saved. Prayed for one person to get saved, and they started getting saved. And for three and four, and I think all of them, ten people. And this, whatever he prayed for would happen. I mean, that power with God right there. Philippians one point nine says, "For for to hear is the grant of the hand of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake." So we we have to get in our in our mindset and our thinking as Christians. Suffering not exception to the rule, it is the rule for Christian life. However that may be. Yes. said in this world you'll have trouble but take heed that uh, I've overcome the world 